Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As far as the clubs around here, man, it, it's just it's just a big family. Everybody tries to help each other. If you don't know an answer, if they don't know it, they'll try to help. In my experience, they'll try to help you find an answer from somebody. Why is it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week is Landon Poplin of Wire Her Outdoors. Landon, how you doing, bud? Good. How are you, man? Living the dream as always. I'm excited to kind of pick your brain a little bit because you do something that I've touched on vaguely or, or just lightly throughout the years, which is uh, just HRC and, and retrieving uh, trials or hunt tests. But you do it in a little bit different of a manner. I know a few people that do it uh, your way with versatile breeds, but uh, I'm excited to kind of jump down that rabbit hole and, and talk HRC and what it's like kind of coming to it with the versatile breeds. But before we get going, kind of introduce yourself to everybody and tell everybody where you're calling from and why you ended up with wire hairs. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Landon Poplin. Um, I own and operate wire hair outdoors here in Hamptonville, North Carolina. Did a lot of research on draught, German wire hair, whatever you want to call it. So we won't get into that debate, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no preference on your end. You don't, you don't care one way or the other. Not really, man. As long as, as long as the dogs got driving, they want to hunt, you know, I'll hunt with them and test them, whatever you want, whatever they want to do. I'll, I'll do it with them. That's my opinion. But yeah, just, I've always been into Upland and the uh, waterfowl side. So really wanted a versatile dog to do it all. Um, did a lot of research, ended up settling on the wire hair. And uh, it's, it's been an adventure for, let's see, Parker's three years old now. So uh, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. We get a so hand, handful of years pretty much then? With the wire hair. Yes, sir. What did, what did you do prior to the wire hair? I had a, a German short hair. And then before that was all labs. Okay. 
So the short hair kind of got you out of just retrieving breeds, and then it just it was the catalyst and connected you to the wire hair. What talk to me about your short hair? What was it like transitioning from retrievers over to the versatile game? As far as the drive and every and all that goes, it was pretty much the same. Um, had some really good dogs. Obviously, the training is a lot different, but a lot more stringent on line manners. Um, no vocalization, you know, make sure they're walking the heel at all times. And, you know, even, you know, we do little short sessions from the back door to the truck in the driveway. I mean, short little stuff like that will keep your dog in check as well. Um, and then, I mean, I didn't do that with that, that short hair. I mean, I just let her open the box and let her go. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You know, watch her on the GPS. So yes. Yeah. So, so when you switched to the versatiles, you kind of just took away the, uh, I don't know, the expectations or boundaries to that level. And you just kind of enjoyed the freedom that so many people that kind of get into the versatile or upland side of the world. It's kind of a, I don't know if it's uh, catches them off guard or, or whatever, but it's kind of nice. Some people respond to it well. Maybe they like appreciate it or maybe because they're so used to having that level of control that they, they, they're kind of slow to adjust to that style. Would you agree with it? Yeah, I would say so. And, and Parker's growing up, you know, he, when we were very dialing in for like the international grant um you know getting him ready for that the, the rules are so strict at the grand and they should be but you know putting that kind of pressure on it's really just mental pressure um on them making sure they're in the holding blind being obedient walking out of the holding blind being obedient i mean you, the dog tugs on a leash at the grand they can tell you to go back to the holding blind and start over you do that again you're out so that quick yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, your dog walks to the line and vocal out. So did you compete with your labs or your retrievers prior to the versatile dogs, or is it the competition stuff just kind of new to you now? It's just as soon as I got Harker, um, just dope head, for, head first into everything. So so you're competing now with your wire hairs, and when you had the retrievers, you didn't you didn't mess around with competing. It's kind of backwards to a lot of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, I don't know, I basically do everything backwards in that aspect, but, um, I mean, they were just meat dogs, you know, uh, I grew up hunting and fishing on out at Harker's Island, of course, North Carolina, you know, we just had meat dogs that jumped out of the blind, got the duck, and came back, so, uh, they, they didn't mark the bird, we'd just jump in the boat and go get it. So fast forward a little bit to me. What what stood out to you? What was kind of the the final deciding factor for you to get involved in hunt testing or competition in general that maybe didn't appeal to you prior to that, or maybe you just didn't have the opportunity to? So when I got Harker, I was extremely serious about him. I always heard about the testing, just never really messed with it. So I wanted to dive into that as well as really get a hold on how do you force fetch? How do you uh, walk and fetch? I mean, every little thing about you know, hunt tests, uh, advanced training, you know, he handles, so he runs blinds. I just really wanted to dive into that. So I linked up with a local guy and just started going to training at his place during the day in, in the mornings. And uh, they talked me into putting him in a test. And I went to my first test and I was like, this, this is fun. I mean, it was a started test. So, I mean, still, I mean, I encourage anybody that, is even remotely interested, just go watch a test. And if you're going to go watch, you might as well just enter your dog. It's 65 bucks and it's worth $65 just for the experience. And, you know, you meet a ton of people and started. I mean, everybody there's usually beginners. So, 
Well, that that's kind of the name of the section of the test starter. Everybody doesn't really expect you to come out with finished level caliber dogs, right? That's kind of the whole point of a starter section. So tell me what was it like? You know, you you got these versatiles, you you're kind of you got talked into going in and, and trying it out for the first time, but when when you got the dogs, you were you're trying to like I guess focus on the upland is is kind of how you put it on the first. So like how did you go about trying to balance that desire to where you wanted to do upland, but now all of a sudden you you got this new hook set into you on trying the retriever test. Tell me what it's like trying to balance those two desires out. I don't know, man. It was it was a lot of trial and error. <laughs> was especially me being new to the hunt test and you know having a versatile dog being able to to balance um and he adjusted super easy i mean it was just like driving a car with him his i have his sister and she is not that way but, <laughs> <laughs> just, um, just proof like, that genetics in the litter is, it, it does matter right <laughs> yeah, uh which i mean they're exact same breeding um but she is just all prey drive and so dialing her back is has been basically what we've been working on with her like she wants to go too much so and harker's just super compliant and you you show him something to do a couple of times he's like all right i got you you know if this is what you want i'll do it that's really interesting so you have two dogs from the same litter you got litter mates so you're glutton for punishment on on that front side right there well they're two years they're two years apart oh okay so just a repeat breeding okay sorry repeat breeding. uh yeah. So let's stick with Harker, the more compliant dog. What what you know, I, and then I want to go into into her mentality, the higher drive, obviously a little, little younger it sounds like, but let's start with Harker and making that transition from upland into the retriever kind of to my previous question, balancing it act out. Did you see like the more focus or intentionality you put behind the retriever training? Did you see anything slip on the upland side because you weren't focusing in on that at all? If, if anything slipped, it was his steadiness. I'm being honest. Yeah. Being basically he has to be steady at the chair, the bucket at the hunt test and the retriever world. But when he went on point, because he was, in my opinion, because he was so steady and he had to keep that composure. When he saw that bird flush in front of his face, he's like, Ooh, I'm gone. So, <laughs> um, we have to, do a few sessions and dial him back in and you know he's usually fine for the rest of the season so which were so you think it was the the visual stimulation of the bird flushing in front of him more so than maybe he had a, a nose full of scent you think that it was the visual stimulus more so than even the scent stimulus I, i'd say it's probably a combination of both okay because you, you know while you may not have, or you may not be like right up on the bird or the bird flush, and you're still going to have the visual stimulus in the retrieving side of the game, right? You know, the the fly away or, or throw away. So really the only thing that'd be missing in my, my head in that equation would be the scent. And so I would think that the scent probably wakes up a, a little bit extra drive, so to speak, in, in Harker. So, right. so that's kind of where my head yeah. would initially go. Yeah, probably starts at adrenaline pump and then, you know, the bird only being, let's say, 15, 20 yards away coming up versus a few hundred yards away in the retriever world. So the steadiness slips as you make the transition with Harker. Now let's talk about the sister, the the younger one, the higher drive, because how many times have you heard when somebody initially comes into this world, I want as much drive as I can find. <laughs> they go they go vet breeders and lines and that's just drive, 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 right. drive. And a really high drive dog 
can make up for a lot of shortcomings for a first-time owner, but I th- I would venture to say that it also, in the long run, bigger picture, can pose a lot tougher scenarios for somebody to learn on a dog. So tell me, you know, contrast Harker compared to her and what it's like trying to uh, cap or or even suppress in a lot, a lot of ways her drive in certain scenarios. I mean, as far as the upland game, I've let her chase. I mean, I don't dogs growing up and just learning. I mean, that's that's fine with me. And then as you cap or dr- drive back, I think for her, uh, when it transitions to the retriever world, uh, she's not like I really have to watch her at the line. Um, like even coming out of the holding blind, you know, she'll be three feet in the air <laughs> or be eye level with me. Jump. That's that's one reason she she's never even done a starter test. And I'm just 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 because of her her blind manner, so to speak. Yeah. So I mean, as soon as you step out of that home line, she's not pulling on lead. She's just jumping straight up and down, up and down. And it's just we gotta get that under control, which I haven't been as as strict as I should have been should be right now. But I mean, they're about to start their hunting season at George High Plantation. So as long as she goes and finds me birds for my clients, I mean, I'm all right with her her jumping up and down at at the moment. We'll we'll work on it in the spring. Well, I, I, I want to put your hypothetical hat on and, and kind of, again, play guess the guess the cause or, or the uh, the recipe that led to this. You know, do you think was it was it an issue or was it showing up in her earlier on in other training? Or do you think by trying to control the drive in a steadiness environment or a blind environment, she just has so much drive that it's just kind of overflowing and just flowing out of her in that form to where maybe you didn't see that. And so it wasn't an issue of you ignoring it or encouraging it. It just showed up because you're trying to uh, control her so much within the blind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's her out. Um, the way, so I, I grew up or not grew up, but I come up through the retriever world, um, learning from Charlie journey. Um, and a few other of his folks there. So they, they describe it as it's a balloon. So if you put pressure on a balloon over here, it's going to squeeze and come out over here. So you got to find that balance in between. And I, I think that's just her out because she's not vocal. And that's, <laughs> and that's where I was headed because that's, because the, the vocality, you know, when dogs vocalize like that, a lot of people just think, Oh, well, that's a really mouthy dog. It's like, well, no, that dog just might have a lot of drive and, you're you're capping its drive to where it has to remain steady and it's it's got to get that energy out one way or another like it's going to show up to your point you squeeze on the balloon it's it's going to tighten down here but blow up on the other end right that's right that's right uh, and we'll we'll work on it but like i said i mean october comes after the green uh, all three of my dogs or actually four of my dogs were headed to George High Plantation to work for the year or work for the season. Well, let's let's jump into the HRC as an organization and kind of a, a testing program in general because you've talked you, you've talked about the started uh, segment or or class, I guess, and then you've mentioned the grand a few times. Can you kind of give me a high level? Just how is the organization broken up with the different classes? What you know, just kind of start there and, and how each test and segment is actually broken up. So beginner's level is started. Uh, that's going to be, you're going to run a land series and a water series. Uh, you'll have two marks on each series that are completely adjacent from each other. Uh, so there's no interference. Because I mean, a later gentleman might have a six-month-old out there, which is 
beginning age of the dog can start testing and somebody else might have a two-year-old that's just found out about hrc um, so they try to keep it you know very spread out so there's no interference with one mark or the other you can hold your dog by the collar in hrc i know it's a little different with the akc side of hunt tests so you can hold your dog or hits the ground say their name hits the water say their name as long as they bring it back to you and you have one step forward in any direction to pick up your bird that they consider that retrieved delivered to hand or started. Is there any age limit, uh, you know, to start or does it time out? Like, tell me about like what actually qualifies a dog. Do they have to be a certain age and then do, can they not test if say it's like a two or three year old dog? No, there's no, there's no uh, maximum age. Just the minimum age is six months. So once you kind of go through starter, starter, you go through it and it did, was it really just the the two marks as you said two marks adjacent that that's all it is is this at the starter level yep so you have a like i said a land series and a water series in the same day um you know you'll move from one place to the other and as long as your dog goes up there and picks up and delivers the hand or within one step in the direction you know you're going to pass that test so once somebody gets through the started i mean what what i mean is it is it technically like a championship once they get to the started or is it literally just kind of what it served for you to kind of hook you and get you involved is it a way to just kind of get started or is there an actual like title to be earned within that starter level um so there's no championship um but the la the other three you mentioned yeah it, it, it hooks you in for sure <laughs> um and it's <laughs> right. man it, i've never met anybody I've, I've never met a bad person at a test you know um even the pros i mean if you approach a pro, you know, obviously don't do it when they're, you know, in the midst of bringing a dog back or taking a dog to the line or something, you know, try to catch them uh, when, you know, when they're relaxing for just a minute, just say, hey, or introduce yourself, ask a question. Uh, they, everybody that I have come in contact with has been more than willing to talk to anybody and help them out. And it's as far as the clubs around here, man, it, it's just it's just a big family. Everybody tries to help each other. If you don't know an answer, if they don't know it, they'll try to help. In my experience, they'll try to help you find an answer from somebody. So and there's always plenty of questions. Yeah, there's a, the the world is not lacking for questions. So what we, we get through the the starter segment, it's just an entry level, puppy level. You know, take it for what it is. It, it's 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 just to get your foot in the door. Where do we go from there once we get past the starter level? Uh, so from there, you'll go into season. Uh, so that's going to be kind of your intermediate level of testing where you will have uh, the marks are thrown as a double and you will turn 180 degrees roughly and run a cold blind, which is handling your dog with whistles and hand signals to that bird. And then that's also a land and water series. Okay, so you're doing it on both land and water on, on this stuff. So about how long is is the blind retrieve on the cold blind? Uh, typically, season water, they keep it around 50, 40, 50 yards. Uh, land, the longest one I've ever ran was like 97. But I think they're allowed, I'm pretty sure it's 100. It's 125 on a land blind. And I think 75 is the max on a, a water blind. Okay, so typical organizational rules, you usually have like a, a window, a minimum and a maximum. And it's just, you know, every test, depending on the judge or setup, is going to be a little bit different. Right. All right. So what's the season get you? You know, is there a title or, or, or championship to earn on that? You know, kind of walk me through what we're actually going here for. Or is it a qualifying uh, segment towards the next level? 
Uh, so once you have completed your season level, it will get you an additional title. So it'll be your HR title, under retriever title. Um, I'll take that back. There's also one more concept to the season test. Uh, there's a walk up or a walk out. So when you finish running your blind, uh, if it's a walk out, you'll turn, grab your shotgun, load one popper, and then your dog has to walk at heel and they'll launch a bird out into the field or the water, whichever they decide to, to run it on. And your dog has to stay at heel and you shoot as long as your dog is steady and that bird hits the ground or the water, you release your dog on your on their name and they retrieve. Um, if they break, you can sometimes, depending on how far they break, a couple feet, you know, heel, and then you can resend them. And that's a control break. Um, but, you know, if they're quite a ways out in front of you, you're out. And so is that kind of up to the judge's discretion on if, you know, whether or not the, they went too far or stayed close enough to stay in the game? Yeah. Typically, most of them judge on outside the barrel. So if your dog's tail is in front of your gun barrel, then you're more than likely going to be out. So on the on the other retrieves, are you is there any simulation? Are you launching the bird and shooting during that with the steadiness requirement? Talks to me about, you know, the... Prior to that, you said that, you know, you have the, the doubles and then you also have a cold blind. So tell me about the actual setup for each one of those. Uh, so your season, since it is a double, you know, you'll maybe have like a, a bird at three o'clock and then you'll turn and shoot a bird somewhere around 10 o'clock. So you'll shoot one bird, rack your gun, pump it up, shoot your second bird, then release your dog. And they just have to stay steady for that. Does it matter whether they go get which bird first? Is it the first one you shot, the second one, which one? Typically, the last one shot is your go bird. Parker sometimes just picks a bird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, even at the finish, he's knock on wood. He hadn't done it at the grand level, but um, in finish test, there's definitely multiple birds where, you know, go bird might have been 50 yards over here, but he was really keyed in on the long bird, and he went and got that that long bird. Will that get him DQ'd or anything like that? Or again, judge's discretion? Only if the judge tells you pick him up in a certain order. All right. And the and the blind, are, are you kind of shooting? Are you shooting a blank or popper and then sending them? Or are you just lining them up and go? So when I started, we got to shoot the blind in season. Um, but this year, they implemented a new rule that is a true cold blind. So you pick up your double and you turn around and you run that blind cold. With no gun simulation, no popper, no nothing. Interesting. So, was there was there a thought like wh what was the reasoning behind that? Was there a hunting reason for this? And th this is what you know. Eventually, we're going to get to it in this conversation. Is really kind of the purpose of HRC? Is it supposed to simulate actual hunting scenarios more so than maybe other retriever trials or competitions? What was the hunting reason for that? Did you hear anything, at least through the grapevines, perhaps? I mean, there's always the hearsay stuff. You know, clubs are trying to save on poppers. Poppers, just like ammo, is, <laughs> it's hard to get a hold of. But to me, honestly, I think that amateurs are getting way, way better. Obviously, pros are good. And the dogs themselves are just that much better. You know, people, people really care about breeding. You know, they're not just saying, oh, you know, I got this good dog and I want a puppy from it. But, you know, they'll go watch a pro and see great dogs. Like, man, I really want a great dog, not a good dog. I, I think a lot of people don't realize just how much of a help or cue that gunfire can be. You know, it's just, 
It, that's why let's, you know, I know that you're familiar with NAVDA too. We'll get into a little bit of that uh, later as well, but the, the blind sequence within NAVDA, you can always tell, you know, or even duck search who uses gunfire to be able to send their dog uh, multiple times. You know, if you don't ever actually train your dog more specifically in the duck search to where you can resend without that gunfire, that can, that can really hang up a lot of dogs Oh, yeah. And so, you, so you're you're suspecting that competition was just getting too good. They had to do something to kind of level the playing ground, I guess. I think so. I mean, there's I seen I ran a down the shore blind on a season test uh, for Harker's title, and I mean that's been a year and a half ago. So you know, he was super young, but the concepts that they're trying to do just because I think the dogs are getting better, like I said, are are really starting to come out in even the season level stuff. Which yeah. Like I said, amateurs are getting way better. I mean they're they're just they're out there grinding every day just just like the pros do. So so yeah, they're just as dedicated. They're starting off with with better bred dogs and also the just the access for information, you know, podcasts, books, social media training portals galore every trainer and and program has their own little training how-to stuff so the access for information is getting easier you you know the technology the e-collars you can kind of group all this up into one little group and explain why amateurs are getting better and so this was you think a way to kind of curb that a little bit yeah that's interesting so once once you kind of get through the seasoned class you, you, you get the, uh, what do you call it? The hunting retriever. Is that what it was for this class? You get that. What's the next step within HRC? Uh, so then you would jump up to finished. So that's going to be, you know, your advanced level, master level equivalent to AKC. So <clears throat> there you're going to shoot a triple. Uh, you're going to have a diversion and a blind. So uh, basically, Hunt test scenario is you're, you're still going to run a land series and a water series um, as long as you pass one or the other to go to the end of the day. So once you go to the line, you're going to sit, you're going to load your three poppers, and you're going to shoot a triple. Um, dog, same rules as season. Um, dog has to stay steady through all shots. And then, you know, when the last bird hits land or water, then you're going to send your dog. Now in season, you talked about the dog might break, or at least on on the on the shot, you have like the length of the gun barrel. Is that allowed at this level too? Like how how st- stringent of a requirement is the steadiness? Like is it butt on the ground does not move, or is a slight you know pick up and drop back down? You t- tell me about you know each level of infraction, I guess. Yeah, so Bacon's stand or sit. Uh, there's no currently. There's no rule about that. I hope they don't change it because <laughs> I run a GSB that she doesn't sit like like she is a bird dog through and through. But you know, I'm I'm helping a guy out to run her in some HRC stuff uh, this fall. And like when you come to the line, you tell her to whoa, like you whoa her beside you, and then she's good. But and that that's a curveball for me because I just say sit, like look over and say sit, and you know shoot my triple, and then we're out, run to run our blind, and we're gone. But um, yeah, so yeah, there's no there's no rule about standing or sitting as far as being in front of the gun barrel. It's the same. Some are a little more stringent on it. Some are just keep it the same level as season. Um, if I was a judge personally, I would be more I'd be more stringent on making sure that dog's not creeping. Because 
in a duck blind or a wood duck hole, you don't want that dog breathing. You don't want, or you shoot, if you go out west somewhere, you get stuck with a big party, you know, hunting lodge. You don't know those guys or, or women from Adam. So you don't know if they've hunted with a dog or not. That dog creeps or breaks very easily get shot. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously the worst case scenario is the dog getting shot and, and being unsafe, but also, you know, just hunting practicality. You can flare birds by a dog breaking. And I mean, we've all been on a blind. Anybody that's duck hunted for any extended periods of time. And I mean, you know, maybe not if they just go once or twice, but if you've hunted a handful of times with a dog in there, usually you've seen at least one group of birds flare just because of a dog's blind manners. Oh yeah. And people, it's not, not, not to just knock the dogs. I mean, (laughs) I I know plenty of guys, I've been guilty of it myself, especially first starting out because you don't know what you don't know until somebody kind of hits you upside the head, like stop looking up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. I think it was the first time, pretty sure it was the first time I ever went snow goose hunting when I was just, I think Harker was nine months old and we were just out there to be out there. Basically. Uh, If I shot some birds, great. I was just out there to work my dog and, um, and it was just ridiculous how many birds were you in lay, lay down blinds yeah, we were in layouts yeah yeah see i i did the i've done the snow goose conservation in arkansas and we, and we didn't set up we didn't do a spread or anything we we, we were sneaking in on them you know we try and find a ditch and kind of low crawl until you get in shooting range and then pop oh, up yeah. and you know you don't you don't even have plugs in your shotguns or anything like that you just start right. meleeing them and and uh I tell you what, I, I think I can still hear those snow geese just <laughs> going off in my head right now. It's like PTSD now. Every time I hear one, I'm like, oh, okay, there we go. When when you're in the middle of like just thousands upon thousands of snow geese, it just, oh, it's yeah. insane. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it roars. That's for sure. Yeah. But you, so you got in trouble when you're in that lay down blind snow goose hunting, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I was just <laughs> you know, looking around. <laughs> listen back i mean I, I was just amazed but i mean you know that that get down that only only had to come through my ears once and i was like all right <laughs> yeah they say it the right tone though it, oh, it'll yeah. stick for sure so so back to the levels you know it we when you go through finish so season is essentially two two marks and this one's a triple and then you still have your blind. Anything else besides that change, or is it just the added bird? It's the added bird and your distances. So in uh, the finish level, they can throw uh, landmarks up to 200. Uh, their land blinds can be 175. Uh, water blinds are 150. And water marks can be up to 175. Typically, you're not going to see that unless they unless the judges have a lot of running water to use um, because like Harker does not swim fast. Like he's very, very methodical about every little thing he does and he just swims super slow, (laughs) Um, which is not a bad thing in my book, but it gives me a lot more control on a blind. So people would be upset if they had to watch Harker swim. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it's running water and then you maybe run through the water and run up to a field yeah. um, and then pick up your bird and come back. But, but yeah, they, they would not, that'd be like a seven minute test. Mm. So eight minute test. They don't, I don't want to watch that either. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm at the line. So it's not like they're just adding an extra retrieve and saying that you're up at the next level. They are making them more, more complicated and, 
and, and difficult or at least uh, distance wise. So they're, they are requiring a little bit more performance. Once you get through the finish, where are you going from there? Is that when you start getting invited to the, the Grand National and all that stuff? Is that like invite only? You have to hit certain qualifications to go to that? Um, well, take a step back still on the finish real quick. Um, okay. As far as your marks go, you know, the season, your marks are, you know, within, I mean, usually 90 degrees of each other, maybe a little closer. They're still trying not to influence each mark from itself. Uh, however, finish, it's fair game. I mean, you can have conversion marks. So you, you could have a mark thrown right to left over in this cover and then left to right. And then basically the, the birds make an X in the air if you're trying to picture it in your head. They're, they can throw mom and pops. So a mom and pop would be birds thrown from the same station in opposite directions. They can throw, you could have to run your blind under the arc of an old ball. So if your bird was thrown from left to right into this little, you know, say behind this, I don't know, patch of Johnson grass, and then you have to run your dog through that patch of Johnson grass to get your blind behind where that mark would have fell. So there's a lot more concepts that they can, they add to it and finish. Gotcha. So they're, they're really going to put you through your paces before you can call your dog a quote unquote finish level HRC dog. Right. Cause once you achieve, once you've finished uh completed finish, your dog earns a hunter retriever champion title. Okay. And once you have that, that's when you can go to the international grant. So the international grant, that's something in the dog world I've heard of a lot. I know it's invite only break down what, what that is, because I know it's a prestigious thing and, and everybody I talk to, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you can get your HRC title at the finish level, but it seems like everybody's really shooting for that grant. Yeah. So the grant is going to be your elite dogs in the, in the country, you know, Typically, the rule of thumb is a 500-point dog because you're earning points as you're going passing each title. And then once you have a 100-tiber champion title, you can still compete and finish, and you're just earning points every weekend um, towards your total. So typically, a 500-point dog is a very experienced dog um, on the finish level. And hunt tests as well is usually in the hunting world. Um, so they have a very good chance of passing the grand because they've seen all the concepts mostly. Uh, it's just going to be different terrain that you're dealing with. All right. So different terrain. I mean, are, are they just using land features a little bit more in the grand? Talk to me about what differentiates it from the the finished level. So at the grand, you're never going to see where a bird comes from. Um, so that like I was talking about those blinds. Uh, at a weekend test, you're going to have a holding blind set up, and they're going to try to hide it the best they can behind a bush or a tree or a tree line. But there's sometimes you just can't hide them completely. Uh, you go to the International Grand, you walk up to that line. Me as the handler, I mean, I might be able to find one or two, but probably not going to be able to pick out all three because, I mean, they'll cut whole trees down and dig holes in the ground and plant them back just to, hold, just to hide a blind. Uh, just because, I mean, it is that prestigious level. So you're going to you're gonna earn it at the grant, that's for sure. So do you have any idea when they first started HRC, did they have the grand or did they just have the tiers? And, you know, once you got through finished, you were finished. And then this was a way to kind of just take it to the next step. Um, I think it, oh, hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure, I want to say it was like a four or five year mark after um, after this was established, they got the grant going. I could be wrong. Um, I have to go back and look at that. 
I, I was just curious because, you know, you talk to people that, that t- train or test or, or trial within any organization, you get the people that more or less, they, they kind of figure it out. I mean, it's not easy, right? But they still kind of have their approach. They, it, it's a, you know, a method just to kind of get through the test. And so, you know, it, I've heard pretty much through every organization, somebody saying like, we should make another level. And I'm just curious if that was kind of the case with HRC to where, you know, you have these these HRC champion, you get your hunter retriever champion, and then they wanted to just take it one step further and see, you know, how can we really challenge and put these champions to the test, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, because the grand single elimination five day series. So you're only doing a land test or a water test, um, one each day. Um, so we'll have like the big convention on the Friday before it starts and then they'll draw, you know, whatever flight out of a hat and then they'll draw, um, like our sponsors, Garmin, Prefer, you know, such and such. And then whoever that first flight they drew and then the first sponsor, because each sponsor has their own like test that they sponsor. So that that flight will be linked to that and then the alphabetical order just kind of follows from there so that's how how your flights are selected for what test you're gonna get so you're gonna get land or water on day one and then it'll flip-flop each day from there until you get to your day five and day five is the upland series and that's where i was going to next because hrc is not only limited to retrievers obviously you're using wire hairs but there is also an upland section of HRC, correct? So like, tell me how the upland side is broken out within the organization. Um, so your upland weekend tests, you're going to have, you, there's no braces or anything like that. You know, you're hunting the field, just you and your dog. The only quote unquote brace, we call it honoring, uh, that you're going to have is you'll get your gun, load your popper, walk up to the line, and you and another person is going to be beside you with their dog. You're just walking through, and they're going to launch a bird from a winger. And basically, the dogs, you can tell them to sit, or you can blow your whistle to get them to stop, or you can whoa them, whatever your preference is. Um, and you're going to shoot your popper, and then the go dog, the working dog, you're going to release them, and your honor dog has to honor that dog to tree. Um, so that's going to start your upland test. Uh, from there, you're going to go into the field with the next set of judges, and you're going to have two birds, typically. If you have a trap or you know your bird runs off, it's not there when your dog establishes uh, the area, and it's just gone, then you know, you'll get a replant. But So what they're looking for is a dog to quarter the field, work with the handler, and establish that the area of the bird, and then they want to see that dog dive in and flush that bird up. The handler's going to shoot his popper, and then there's a gunner on each side of you, and they're going to try to shoot the bird. Um, sometimes they miss, sometimes they don't. Uh, if they do hit the bird, obviously just make your retrieve. You can walk your dog towards the bird. Uh, there's no rule against that. Uh, but if they miss, you can they'll just tell you to reheal your dog, and then you go to your next bird and repeat the same sequence. So did I understand correctly that you said that they expect, you know, your dog goes on point, but when it comes to flushing the bird that they expect the dog to go flush the bird for you as well. So, so maybe (laughs) I think almost all of the, from my understanding, all the other upland tests or trial systems, that's not the case. The, the gunner is kicking up the bird, but an HRC, you have to be able to release your dog and have them flush. Is there any steadiness requirement after the flush? Do they have to stop after the bird flushes? Yes. So once that bird, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, 
because basically, I mean, it's all either Labs or Boykins. And, you know, Boykins are, I mean, they are a flushing breed. So, um, and I've never ran a Boykin, so I don't know how that is. But, you know, a Lab, they're a little more, in my opinion, they're a little more compliant because you obviously you teach them to flush that bird on their name or, you know, whatever your keyword is. Um, and then as soon as that goes, as soon as you shoot and then, you know, you just blow your whistle, you can say sit, you can say whoa, whatever your command is. But once you say that, that's it. You cannot repeat your whistle or any verbal command. And if they make any forward progression to the bird, then you're out. And so, yeah, you, you said it's mostly labs and boykins, <laughs> but obviously you have wire hairs. How many people are doing this with actual pointing breeds? Like if I was to go show up to an upland test, am I going to be the only one there doing that? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> with with, with right. a, with, you know, cause you have a, you have one setter, right? Yeah, I have a, I have one setter, a small Munstie and a short hair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you show up with any of those, you will be the only versatile dog there. All right. Of any of those. And the requirement doesn't change, even though I have an actual quote unquote pointing dog. They don't have a pointing stake and a flushing stake. They just have the upland stake. That's that's really interesting, right. actually, because I actually I get asked not very often, but it does come up from listeners. You know, do I ever train my my pointing dogs to go flush for me? And I know some people that have, have done it over the years, but generally they all say that they kind of get through their testing or trialing before they screw around with that. And so, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, doing it this way, it's, it's really interesting, but it's, it harkens back to the purpose of HRC and, and actual hunting scenarios, because I can't tell you how many times I've been in the field to where not only would it have been nice for me, but I've actually heard other people that I've been hunting with like, man, I wish I could just release them to go kick the, kick up that bird for me. So there is right. a hunting practicality to it, no matter how many of the pointing dog enthusiasts or traditionalists are banging their he heads against the steering wheel right now. And I mean, I, and I get both sides. I really do. But I don't know. See, for the Boykin and Lab people, they have the advantage of, you know, it's more natural instinct for that dog to flush and then that's it. Um, whereas Harker, you know, and they have to be super quick on their verbal command or whistle when that dog flushes. Whereas on my side, Harker just goes on point and then he releases, he flushes when I tell him to. So I, I have time to kind of compose myself, take a breath and then say, Harker, and then he'll go in and flush. Now, the opposite side of it is he doesn't want to take that, you know, adrenaline rush, all oh, that bird's up, let's go get it. And then, ah, not let me shoot real quick. And then you just sit down because he's Parker's trained to sit the flush. So, that, I mean, there's pros and cons to this, just like everything else. And so I'm just trying to picture myself in that scenario. So what kind of, are y'all primarily using chucker, quail? What, what kind of birds are you guys using? Are they free planted? Because I'm just picturing a lot of upland birds you, you, or pen raised birds you go put out in the field. I, I've seen a lot of pointing dogs are going to catch those birds on the flush. I'm just, I'm just being real about that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you actually release the dog to go get it and, yeah. and that bird gets up, you know, my dogs are actually going to try and snag that bird rather than quote unquote flushing it. Oh yeah. So in your weekend test, typically I'd say nine times out of 10, you're going to have quail and they're just planted in, you know, mostly we're somewhere doing an upland test. It's going to be Milo, uh, something like that. Uh, at the at the grand, they're chucker or pheasant, and they will be the your first bird will be free planted. Uh, your second, if you have to, 
if you happen to have an entrapment um, or something, the bird don't fl- doesn't fly at all. You know, your bird, your I can shoot, and, or he attempts to flush, and the bird never moves. But you know, he stops himself. Then it just call that. You know, it's basically scratch that one and go to the next one. Your second bird is going to be in, you know, like your dog tour, your sport dog, you know, launch boxes. Basically, pick, picture that, but upside down. And it's just going to have a door. So you hit your electronic oh, and it drops yeah. that bird out. Is basically, they want to watch the dog quarter. And then when your dog's somewhat in the area of that bird, they'll, and the dog's not looking that direction, they'll hit the button and they'll drop it on the ground. So the bird has just enough time to figure out, oh, I'm on the ground now, not in the box, and that dog's yeah. right on. That that drop cage, so to speak, it's uh, it allows the scent cone to develop, but also you don't ever have to dizzy up the bird or cramp them up. So like when they hit the ground, they're gonna run, and if you have a pheasant, they're gonna run. Oh I mean, yeah, chucker, <laughs> you know, some, sometimes you'll drop it, they'll sit there, but. Uh, th- so it, that does help to where you're not dizzying or, or planting the bird, so to speak. So that does right. help a little bit, but man, that's, that's a whole brand new challenge that I know <laughs> a bunch of Upland guys that would, uh, be interested in, in figuring out how to play that game. It's, it's fun. <laughs> the training part's frustrating with a point and dog teaching them to flush and then be like, yeah, yeah. No, you pointed it. Good job, bud. No, say your name. Oh, you just told me to flush this bird. I'm supposed to catch it. And then you just blow the whistle to sit down. Yeah. So, yeah. Now that's, it, takes a, it takes a bit. That's really interesting. So at the Grand, you have you have the retrieving stuff, and then you also have the upland. Do you have to do both? Or is if you go there for the retrieving side, that's all you're doing, and then vice versa with the upland? Or or is the whole point of the Grand to, no, let's find the dog that does both the, the retrieving side and the upland side? Right. So they're, they're looking for, you know, the kind of saying the cat's meow. So they want to see that champion, that grand champion is what they want to see. Like I said, you're going to have, you got to pass all four series before you even get to day five, which is your upland series. Day five. So five days of training or, or testing. So you could, you could prepare for this. It's a five day test. You go and you're knocking it out and you, you know, you get through the first four days and that fifth day does you in. It's like, oh yeah, I just experienced it this spring. (laughs) Oh, so, all right. So you got, so so you got cut on the last day, so to speak. Yeah. So last fall, um, that Graham was in just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, Parker. Over there by my old house, pretty much by, uh, uh, the pools knob area, Percy priest. Is that where you're at? Yeah. Uh, Smyrna is where it was. Yep. 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 Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I used to live a mile away from those grounds. That's where, no when I got into this, I didn't have all my land and everything over there. So I, I used to get up and take the four wheeler out there at like four in the morning just to road the dogs and, and do all the training. So that, yeah, that's my old stomping ground. Oh right. yeah. That's a beautiful place. That's a beautiful yeah. place. It holds a special place for me. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Uh, so that was my first grand. Uh, Harker, obviously, is his first grand. Um, he was actually the first wire-haired to ever compete at the International Grand. And um, we made it to, to three series there. Um, and then we went out. And this past spring, it was down in Omaha, Georgia. And we made it through some pretty hard land and water tests the first four series and that fifth series got us he he went on point and um you know he held his point i got ready said his name he went in and flushed the bird bird just flew off just as pretty as you could be and 
I blew my whistle and he was starting to sit down and the bird turned and went back over his head. And when it went back over his head, he was, he reared back up and took off. And then he was at that point, it's a controlled break and he's out. But, that that would piss me off so bad <laughs> well, getting that far. So, I don't know. It was kind of one. I didn't really know what to think at, at the moment. You know, I was happy that you know he's still the first. He's still the only wire hair to compete at the Grand. So one, I was happy to be there on day five, um, just to get that far. And two, I mean, yeah, it's part of it. I mean, it just happens. If you went and passed every one of them, it, it necessarily wouldn't be that fun it's just like all right it's just whatever i mean it, it needs to be challenging like that but that's really right. impressive i mean i i don't know if there is another testing organization that does a holds a five-day test i think the super retriever series don't they do like a three-day test but it's not a five-day test if i'm if i'm thinking of the correct one um well akc has the master national and they have i believe it's eight series they go through maybe nine but it's it's strictly retriever, and then yeah, super retriever series. I think it's six series, but they usually knock out you know a couple series towards a day towards the end. So that that's what I thought. I thought the SRS was three days, but man, it's it's hard enough to keep track of <laughs> one organization, let alone all the details in all of them. Right. So that's really interesting. Obviously, a lot of unique pieces that that some listeners might really find interesting or appealing to to go give a shot in in this world. What what is it about HRC that appealed to you so much more so than the other organizations? Because it is different than say AKC in the fact that like it it, it really prides itself on setting up quote unquote, realistic hunting scenarios. That's all I've heard since I've got in the gun dog world is like, you know, when you get in the retriever side of the thing, there there's a bunch of different tests and trials, but you, you might get into a couple scenarios that you're probably realistically never going to see in a hunting scenario. So talk to me about HRC. Do you find that to be true or accurate in your experience so far? Yeah, I'd say about 90% of the time it's going to be a true hunt scenario. So typically on the finish side, your land series, because they, they are allowed to put decoys in the field um, or, the, or the water. Uh, they're not allowed to use motion decoys. Um, that's a whole other story. But um, which, I mean, hunting dogs. I mean, well, I was about to say, I'm kind of curious, but let, let's circle back to that. <laughs> right. you, can, you continue on that, that, but we'll circle back to that because that's, yeah. So usually land series, you're going to have, Usually you'll have some duck decoys, like, you know, some dive bomb socks or, you know, whatever kind of sock decoys up front. And then you're going to have maybe some Canadian silhouettes or, you know, some snow goose silhouettes out in the field. So it's quote unquote goose hunt. The water, it really depends on what water they, they have access to at the test site. Um, a lot of stuff down in Georgia, you're going to run into like some little potholes or a little wood duck holes, stuff like that. And it is, you know, a lot of those tests are super short marks and in your face. Your blind is going to be super hard, you know, ping-ponging through trees. But usually, I would say 50 decoys is average on, on each series, um, if, the, if they can set it up, especially with the water. Um, but your land series is definitely going to have decoys. And and it goes beyond just even decoys because doesn't the doesn't the handlers have to be completely decked out in camo as well? So you you're not going to have your white coat or jacket on to for your to be able to give hand signals. And for those listening, that really makes a difference 
when your dog is, let's say, 100 yards out in front of you, you blow that whistle, it sits and, and it's trying to pick you up, and there's just uh, on the horizon is trees, and you're standing in front of that horizon. It can be difficult for those dogs to pick you up, but that is how you are hunting in those scenarios. That's so, right. You know, it, it does it have to be completely decked out from head to toe in camo, or is it just like just an element where, hey, put a camo hat on or something like that? The hat's a controversial subject, too, with some people. So some judges will allow like a mesh back and then a camo front. Uh, as far as your shirt, pants, slash shorts, um, you, you can wear either pants or shorts. It's up to you. Uh, shirt and your bottoms have to be all camo. Um, your shoes can't be any bright colors, you know, white, um, things like that. But um, the hat, you can't remove your hat. So AKC and like SRS in certain series of SRS, you can remove your hat and you know flag it to help cast uh, on running a blind. But HRC, you cannot remove your hat. Wow, that that can make it really challenging for a dog to pick you up. So you can you can wear shorts. So it, it behooves you to just wear long pants when you're training year round, and then that way you don't get a tan down there and you got some pale legs yeah. <laughs> do you can you do that do, do you have to have long sleeves on on your shirt so a weekend test you can roll your sleeves up uh, so if i have a okay. handler's jacket on um if i you have to roll your sleeves in so the, the old school handler's jackets were just you know same camo pattern underneath well the new ones now you roll it back and it's white so you can't have any of that showing um at the grand this past spring, they did let me slide my sleeve up, like just where it was tight against my forearm. Um, and I did that because it was blazing hot one day. But um, they did allow that. But you, if you try to roll your sleeves up, they'll just tell you to change your shirt or keep your sleeves down. That's really interesting. So somebody that's nat- naturally just a real pale complexion is going to have supposedly a competitive advantage in that regard to where, you know, if, if they can just get halfway up your forearm – that can help flag a dog a lot easier than, you know, sleeves all the way down to your wrist for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's Harker's road sign. You know, he, he's looking for that sign of which direction when I stop him to go. So anything can help him out. Do you have to have any kind of facial covering like a face mask or, or the, you know, something that you might be wearing in a duck blind perhaps? No, they don't go that far with it. Hopefully they don't. All right. <laughs> so grow the beard out year round and train in it and then right before the the test just shave your beard <laughs> and then you have a nice white pale line to show off for your dog there you go there you go all right see i'm a, i'm a, i'm already tracking man i'm already figuring out these advantages here absolutely <laughs> absolutely so aren't you guys aren't there certain situations where you're going to be in a canoe or lay down blind or kayak or something like that as well i haven't run it i've heard stories of it but i haven't run into it for hrc um is see where was that yes it was north georgia or coastal um down around like southern georgia um is where it was they actually ran a test out of a duck blind in a swamp and your dog had to go in and out the dog ring um which i didn't i wish i'd have been there that'd been fun but um typically you're just gonna be at the water's edge uh and sitting on a chair that's that. That's interesting. So and and so obviously you're a duck hunter. I'm sitting here staring at some some mounted ducks behind you. So unless you you know inherited those from a buddy or something like that, you obviously <laughs> yeah. hunt some ducks from time to time. In your opinion, 
the actual blind setups, the crisscrosses, the marks, all that are actually realistic hunting scenarios. They're not doing like a mark that's, you know, 500 yards away and saying like, well, if you train your dog, go do it. Like, no, they're actual something that you might could potentially see in an actual real hunt. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the land, the land setups, like I said, there's limitations to how far they can run the marks and the blinds. So that, that holds a lot of the hunt savvy hunt uh, scenario presence to the, to the test. So not to say that you couldn't shoot a goose and that sucker sells 400 yards across the field. I mean, that's, I've seen it, um, especially in Arkansas or Oklahoma. And, but typically on a duck hunt, you know, you might sell, I got a little farm pond that I hunt and I could easily sell a winged duck 150 yards across the pond to the other side if it chose to, you know, fly that way. Um, so that, People say, oh, you're not going to shoot ducks that far. Yeah, I mean, you throw a duck out of a winger at 175. Yeah, you know, obviously you didn't shoot that duck, but you're simulating the mark, not, you know, an actual, you know, duck's cupped up or, you know, coming in and swinging on you and you shoot it and then it flares out because you winged it and then it sails off over there. That's not what they're simulating. They're simulating that duck that's already been shot and has sailed and it lands wherever it may be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I used to do a lot more duck hunting than what I do now. I mean, now it's maybe once or twice a year, you know, I get talked into going to a duck blind, but I've gotten kind of spoiled waking up a little bit later, enjoying my morning coffee and just going for a walk rather than going to bust ice <laughs> and, and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I've, I've done right. my fair share of duck hunting in the past. And, you know, there, there's one or two that comes to mind to where, to your point, you can flare one or, or just kind of wing one and it just kind of sail a good, good ways off. I've seen two come to mind of, you know, 150, 200 yards, somewhere in there. It's anything kind of beyond that, that I kind of find a little bit unrealistic, so to speak, because it's like, okay, I used to duck hunt quite a bit. And I can only think of two times to where that 150 to 200 was kind of that end mark, so to speak, of, of a distance. And I know there's some guys out here to where, you know, they swear that they're, they've seen a duck do it four or 500 yards. I'm not calling them a liar. I'm just saying, how often does that really happen? Right. And so, you know, when I say realistic, that's kind of what I mean, you know, emphasizing on realistic hunting scenarios. To where, you know, I would put more pride or, or more emphasis on the, the dog being able to test and hunt out of that blind scenario that you just described, getting in and out of the dog box more so than a dog that, that will go do a 500-yard blind, right? I don't, I don't know if you kind of think of it in the same light as I do, but that's kind of how I break it out into my head to where if, if it's not statistically speaking a, a thing that I'm going to experience in the duck blind, I don't really have a need for it other than it's cool to just push the boundaries of what these dogs can do. You get, like you said, that four or 500, I mean, you're getting into the retriever field trials and like, it's pretty freaking cool that they can train dogs. To do yeah. That. Oh, like, it's awesome. I just don't want to do it. I, mean, <laughs> I don't have a need for it. <laughs> I, think, I remember how long I was at Etowah down in Georgia and they do like a monster blind just to like help raise money for, they usually like pick, a, uh, a charity or something and then they do like a 50 50 like split and then whoever wins the monster blind usually you know gets half the pot and i think that blind was like 363 365 something like that he did not win mind you but <laughs> i mean it was still fun to like i mean i still got him there it's just i didn't get him there as, as few whistles as possible 
And and don't get me wrong, man. I'm I I find it just as fascinating and and thrilling to watch a dog do it. I just I don't I guess I don't buy into it when people try and convince me or pull the wool over my eyes saying that like, oh yeah, it can really happen in a hunting scenario. It's like, man, call call it what it is. It's it's just because you can do it with a dog, which by all means, you know, go do it, whatever. But coming coming back to the hunting scenarios, the motion decoys, what's the thought process behind that? Because I, I, I swear when I go hunting with duck hunting with some guys more often than not, you have to make them keep the mojo in their duck, in their truck, then bring it out. You know, it's like everybody <laughs> has motion decoys out in right. the spread, whether that's a Rippler or, or whatever, like the motion decoys are kind of a staple in the blind nowadays, kind of much to my chagrin a lot. You know, I'm down South. So are you. So, you know, by the time the the birds get down to us, they've seen all the spreads, they've seen all the motion decoys. And I try and tell everybody like back when I was duck hunting, seriously, you leave the motion decoys in the truck. You actually have better luck in my opinion. Oh yeah. The only motion in my spread is I might have two. I, I hardly ever throw more than six decoys ever if I'm hunting around here. And if I have any motion, I'll have two on a jerk rig. That's it. Um, as far as the testing goes, it was, I don't know, eight months maybe. Very short-lived spurt there that they had some motion decoys. Uh, and not to say bad on anyone, um, you know, amateurs, pros, whatever it may be. It's a hunt scenario. So your dog should see a decoy, whether it's motion or uh, a sock on a stick, a silhouette, a floater in the water. It doesn't matter to me. A decoy is a decoy, whether it moves or not. And some guys, two judges, put some motion decoys in a test and it caused a huge uproar. Because you had those, I don't know, I'll step out on a limb and say show dogs. Um, they've never seen, they've seen a decoy in the test, but other than that, they never see a decoy for the rest of the year. And so there was a bit of controversy and they went to HRC and they got that squash pretty quick. And that was like six dogs in one weekend failed because they wouldn't go anywhere near uh, a little spinning mojo because the duck was eh, maybe 10 yards behind it. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that because it's an option, you know, not everybody has to go duck hunt with motion decoys. I mean, I guess you could say that that's it, but I don't know, man. It's just, I see, I see them more often than I don't when I, you know, especially now, you know, when I'm joining most other people out, you know, out in their spread and setup, you know, they're more often than not, I'm going to see a mojo of some sort out there. So I don't know that that's, that's kind of interesting. Talk to me about the transition over into NAVDA because you do participate within NAVDA. Have you tested yet with Harker and NAVDA? Not yet. I, I had planned on doing the NA and then just, I was hot and heavy in the retriever world. And I think it's was it a year, 16 months, 16 months. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it was, it came and went in a heartbeat. So um, I think we're going to try to run some nav or the UT in the spring. Um, really just depends on if I can get in a test. Uh, they fill up so fast around here. And I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll play that, play that by ear. Yeah. Even if you're willing to travel, it, it can be difficult to find the test to sign up for, but you, I tell everybody, like, if you're going to commit to it and, and it's a, it's a goal of yours and you know, I'm going to, UT. UT test next spring. Don't wait. Sign up because to your point, like finding that test, you I know plenty of guys that have driven, you know, 12 plus hours just to go just to go test. And I mean, that there oh, yeah. there's last minute uh vacancies all the time, but there's no telling how far away it is. But 
what are your thoughts in terms right. of the steadiness, especially with his release now? Is is Harker good if you don't give him the commander release, or does every now and then that kind of shine through to where you you've worked him so much to where that is part of the equation that he's accustomed to now is going to flush and then stop on the flush. Do you kind of foresee any issues or challenges doing that going back into NAVDA to where obviously steadiness prior to the flush is a huge component to the, to the test? I think he just knows, honestly. Um, it's like when we, if we're upland testing for HRC, I release him in the field with hunt him up. Um, he knows with, <clears throat> if I say his name, uh, which usually I have to say a couple of times, get him to release the flush. And like with NAVDA, he knows that I'm going in. So I think my physical presence pushing in on him, he already knows that I'm flushing the bird. He just has to stand still. So when you, in that scenario, let's just go into the training field right now. If you were to go in there with Harker, you go kick the bird up. He understands that he's supposed to stay there because you didn't release him. Is he still going to sit on that flush, you think? He does. Okay. Yeah. I'd say 90% of the time he's, he's, he sits the flush. Are, are you, how do you plan on, what's your thoughts on addressing that if you're going to go with the UT? So I actually talked to Jeff Tucker about that at Foothills NAVDA here. And because, I mean, like I said, I've never run a, a NAVDA test. And he said, make sure you addri- address that with the judges just so they're not marking that as, um, you know, losing confidence or um, intimidation, anything like that. You know, he's like, if you're trained that way, and that's that's how he's trained, um, just because I'd rather do that and pass the grand than him not do it and not pass the UT. I'd be interested to know the the judges' takes on that. You know, I've been to a handler's clinic and I've been in a UT test, but contrary to popular belief, that doesn't make me an expert on the <laughs> on the test or rules. Uh, some people swear it does, but it it, it does not. Uh, but I'll be interested. I might have to place a phone call into a judge and get their take on that. Maybe yeah. maybe talk about that in the outro of this because I'd be interested to how they might interpret that in an actual test. Yeah, I mean, he said. As long as you tell them that's what it is, they should be okay. But, I mean, like you said, a judge is a judge, and they have opinions just like we do. So. Well, I might have to make a phone call for the outro and, and get their take on that one and, and, and let, plug that Let in. me know what they yeah, say. I, I, I might have to do something <laughs> fun on that. So everybody listening to this, stay tuned to the outro. And, and I mean, Landon, that that honestly is a, a nice little segue. I know that we could kind of go all day in comparison and, and nitpicking little topics here, but – I think we just save that for next time. I'd like to uh, next time, especially if you come back up to Nashville or next time I'm coming to North Carolina, I'd love to link up with you and, and kind of see some of this stuff in action because it, it is fascinating. You know, I think so many people on both sides of the world don't venture across the line, so to speak, enough to really learn and appreciate what the other side has to offer because you can learn so much from the other side. Uh, oh, yeah. Whether your retrievers go into versatile or upland, and then vice versa, it's it's one of those. I've really expanded my knowledge base and my comfort level on certain topics just by getting out of my echo chamber within the versatile side or upland side and picking the brains of retriever guys and seeing what their dogs do. And let's face it, there's a huge hiccup, or not a hiccup, but uh, th- there's a huge component within the dog world in general that 
they get hung up on retrieving so much. It's like the, these people get pointing dogs and versatile dogs. And you would think that like their first instinct would be, how do I get my dog on birds? But they're already talking about retrieving yeah. when the dog's like <laughs> nine weeks old. And I'm like, guys, that's like the, that's the last step of the process for an upland dog. But there's something about retrieving and the retrieval of game that people just emphasize and prioritize. And I tell everybody on the versatile side, like, if that is how you, how you think about it, wouldn't it behoove you to actually go talk to the guys that really do the retriever side day in, day out? Like, those are the guys that really know, know the ins and outs of it. You know, they might be working with dogs with different genetics and different drives. Right. But to me, it just makes sense. If I want to learn retrieving, I'm going to go retrieving. If I want to learn steadiness, I'm going to go to the upland side, right? right? And right. and I think the more people that learn that there's something to glean from both sides, like, you know, dog training is dog training. I've said it a million times, but it's really fun to get out with retriever guys and see what, what it is that they really do with their dogs because it's a completely different world in a lot of ways, <laughs> but it's it's similar in a lot of ways as well. Exactly. I mean, I encourage anybody just just go try it. If you don't like it, that's fine. I mean, you try a different flavor of ice cream and you don't like it, you just don't buy it no more. You don't. If you don't like the retriever stuff, you don't do it no more. If you don't like the up inside of your retriever world, you don't do it anymore. But I mean, who's to say that you won't make a great friend or a, a different connection? I mean, all different sorts of things can can come to play and transpire there on, from either side. Absolutely, I agree. Well, Landon, I enjoyed it as always. We could keep going, but I'm going to wrap this up. I'm right. kind of curious. I need to go call a senior judge and ask that question <laughs> on the uh, sitting after the point. So right. I, I enjoyed it. We'll have to do it again. Absolutely. You let me know the answer to that one. <laughs> Will do. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, everybody, hope you enjoyed that episode with Landon Poplin. This was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. It's a lot of fun exploring different kind of worlds and territories, especially with people that use the uh, the versatile breeds outside of just NAVDA or the Versatile Hunting Dog Federation. I, I just like people that do a whole bunch of different things with their dogs, if you guys can't tell from uh, some previous episodes and stuff like that. But... I did follow up with a NAVDA judge on the sitting on flush uh, topic that you heard us kind of discussing within the episode. And he did confirm that sitting on the flush does not matter. He, you know, he said a lot of judges may not find it pretty. Uh, they personally may not care for it, but it is not going to affect his score at all. Once, once the bird flushes and the pointing stops. And so if the dog just sits on the flush, that's not going to affect his score at all again may not be pretty but like landon said uh his main priority is the hrc and doing the uh, international grand so uh yeah for whatever that's worth i thought it was uh kind of an interesting tidbit the fact that you do have an upland series or something to touch on in the uplands within hrc sounded like a a heck of a challenge and and journey to go on a a five-day test like that and and obviously challenge for a lot of different reasons but i mean just the fact that 
uh, a pointing dog going into flush and then still expected to sit on the flush and remain steady, that's that's pretty impressive. And uh, whether people like it or not, I do get a lot of feedback from a lot of people that have either already started to transition or at least considering uh, allowing their pointing dog to flush. Again, it's not for everybody. I I personally, at least in, in the standpoint that I'm in, I, I still like the pointing dog goes on point and the, the hunter goes in to flush it. But I do understand from a hunting practicality or hunting standpoint why that would be nice, especially if the birds are in thick cover and you don't have to worry about like trying to throw rocks in there to flush them or, or what have you to try and get a better shooting picture. But uh, yeah, I mean, I personally still still like it the uh, quote unquote more traditional or uh, correct way, I guess, whatever you want to call it. But I do, I am hearing more and more people uh, considering that for for whatever that's worth. But uh, yeah, speaking of hunting, it is this week. I know plenty of people are out and about. They're they're starting. They've kicked off the season. It is hunting season, so this is just kind of a my annual reminder to everybody, you know, go out there, be safe, be safe getting out there, be safe once you're out there. My, you know, muzzle awareness, mind those, the direction your shotgun's pointing, you know, weapons on safe, all all that stuff that is always worth uh, mentioning and rehashing and reminding everybody. But uh, also have fun, you know, go out there. That's what you're out there to do is to have fun with just the experience, getting out there, seeing new places, hunting new birds, hopefully get, getting the experience for your dogs and, uh, you know, just have fun with it. If you're not having fun, then uh, you need to kind of look at what you're doing, figure out how to make it have fun and, and do it for quote unquote, the right reasons again. And and then this is just a reminder to hunt your own hunt. Everybody is out there that what they consider to be fun and what they enjoy about the experience is different. All that matters at the end of the day is, is it safe? Is it legal? Is it fun? And with that being said, you know, just my reminder, I, I, I like to just remind everybody that your hunt can be completely different than someone else's hunt. So, you know, by all means, hunt your hunt, be safe, have fun, and good luck. It's going to be a long season. I hope you get into them. I hope you get the experiences and the rewards that you're after. Um, we're going to, I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up for those that are interested. I've had a lot of people kind of hit me up since I've, uh, touched on done a few episodes as far as like the, the gun fitting with Dell Whitman for, um, my upcoming up Upland gun company shotgun. I have a video up on YouTube walking you through the entire gun gun fitting process. So if you have any interest in in the gun fitting process, then by all means, go check that out. It literally takes you to why I'm doing it all the way through the entire process, all the talking points, all the advice from Dell. It's uh, It's got some good information in there, and even in terms of the proper gun mount and stance and, and shooting stance and stuff like that. So uh, go check that out. I'll have the link in the show notes, but you can also just find it on YouTube. While you're there, by all means, hit subscribe and uh, follow us so that you can catch all the new videos as well as the old videos from last year. In that same vein, hit subscribe on the podcast on whatever platform you're listening right now. Share it with a friend. It's hunting season. You have a lot of hunting uh, or a lot of road trip drives and windshield time. So by all means, fill that in with uh, GDIY. It really means a lot. This is subscribe button. Make sure that you uh, you catch all future episodes and new exciting titles. I got a lot of cool stuff, a lot of good guests, interesting topics coming your way for hunting season. So by all means, hit that subscribe button and share with a friend. Thanks as always for hitting download on this one. I hope you enjoyed it and hope you uh, check out next week's. Thanks, guys.
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and again year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.